Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Word is Proud Media Partner of Latitude Festival. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to www.latitudefestival.co.uk. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Tony, what, what did you do this weekend? Oh, what did I do this weekend? Well, it was... <laughs> I took delivery of a Dalek, actually. Um... <laughs> Right, it's my wife's full size birthday this Friday. She loves the Dalek. She loves robots, actually. I mean, that's the um, that's the obsession. She loves particularly it, Daleks. It's not a whole Doctor <laughs> Who thing. It's just I know. And she likes she likes robots. And she's and she's got all these little sort of uh, different you know small sizes key rings and things of Daleks. And I thought, what can I get her for her birthday? Let's just go mad. So a couple of months ago, I found out the official uh, BBC licensee. For making Daleks, and I put an order in for a life-size Dalek. And you took delivery of that I this week. Uh, and where are you week. hiding it prior to her birthday? I'm afraid one can't hide a Dalek that's full size. So, so you've already, yeah. so you've already given it's them there. The it's oh, like there's a guy outside, Sue. He's going to bring something in the house. Why don't you just go upstairs for about ten minutes while he puts it together? Because it comes in three pieces. Well, it goes procrastinating. Can you get inside it? No, you can't get inside it, and it doesn't flash on and off or anything like that. But it's it's it is life-sized if there is such thing for a Dalek and um, it just looks absolutely brilliant so there you go that's what you get for the woman who's got everything Tony Wadsworth bought his his wife a Dalek what did I do this weekend very boring I went for a trip round the Olympic Park that was the height of excitement official trip round the Olympic Park Fraser what did you do this weekend I did the dullest thing I've ever done (laughs) I uh, I went on a uh, two hour 1938 tube journey which was a vintage tube driving around West London which would have been great for 10 minutes, but the passengers... I mean, I'm a music bore. I, I have that boring gene, but these people take it to a, another level altogether. The tube bore? You can, you oh, can... my goodness. There was not a, a single wedding ring on that entire character. <laughs> <laughs> these people <laughs> was just staggering. What do they do? What's the most boring thing they could say? I mean... Oh, I was passing the Ealing marshalling yards earlier on. Lovely sea stock there. Air compressors, very rare, very rare. <laughs> 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 
Fraser, it was voluntary, right? Yeah, no, I paid for it. But it had various features that they don't have anymore. It had a guard, didn't it? It had a guard, yeah, and he pushed it. Remember the days when they used to have a guard on the tube train? Used to be in the back carriage. Yes, they did. And you had, sit behind the, the small barrier. Do the crossword. Used to hand operate the. Uh, yes, that's right. And he'd always lean out the door while everyone smelled of tobacco. Until it just got into the, the tunnel and then right. nip back in. Right. Well, well, why so did you do it though? Because you, you must have known what you were getting into. I it, thought it would be interesting, <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. So now we'll know. Uh, so Mark Allen, who always has the most impressive weekend, <laughs> tell us what you did on Saturday. On, on Saturday, I was uh, in Stoke Newington. Uh, no, you did the full day, Mark. What oh, did you do? Oh, you mean Sunday? Oh, Sunday. Oh, no, okay, Sunday, no, Sunday in Stoke Newington. So Sunday you went to a party from Bob Bestway. Dylan at a party in Stoke Newington in the garden, thinking, in a way, it's bad. Thinking, thank God I'm not there. <laughs> it was sheeting down in Stoke Newington, and I could almost feel the umbrellas going up in Finsbury Park. And the answer was blowing in the wind it all, was the way, all the way across. From no, but Finsbury what I did Park. the next day was I got up as I do every year uh, on indeed on Farmer's Day, and I got we get about uh, quarter past five in a flat in Clapham, and we bicycle to uh, Palace Pier in Brighton. Which we did, fact fans, in under four hours. Yeah. Do you still and cycle up Ditchling Beacon? We go uh, up, oh, all the way up Ditchling. Do you know Ditchling Beacon? Yes, that's steep. Phew, well, I, I, I tried cycling up it once actually. It fell off. <laughs> it fell off. Well, I'm sure a lot of people listening will have done the London to Brighton at some stage, yeah. and they will know that when you get to Ditchling Beacon, which is is uh, it's 1.1 miles, and takes about 12 minutes of. Absolutely crippling percent. What astonishes me is that ninety percent of the people going up it get off and walk. I was lacking up in those funny shoes that people wear when they come oh, yes, 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 yes. their bike. And they're all riding one thousand pound bicycles. But the old Charlie Hawtrey brigade <laughs> with Mark Ellen and their baggy shorts go herring up because what's the point in paying all that money if you can't ride a bicycle up a hill? And so then you go to then Brighton. You get, you get to Brighton, then you go straight into the sea. I now, was how many people how, how many people <laughs> how many people, Mark? Only how one. many people went in the sea. Only one person. Oh, was he wow. One of my pals actually went back something up onto goon. The, yeah, on the walls. <laughs> <laughs> was it Wind you? swept, you know, idiot. You <laughs> were. I swam. Were yeah. you covered in lard? Uh, like a channel uh, swam? No, it wasn't that bad, actually. And then we paddled down to the Regency where we ate our body weight in battered fish. God, that's a probably good day out, I reckon. I get exhausted just thinking about it. Lock. So that's what everybody's done at the weekend. This is the word podcast. Special guest, Tony Wasworth. Tony, Ooh. welcome. Thank very you very much. Tony, Tony, we're in various hats during a, an illustrious career, um, and currently chairman of the BPI. Yep, Ch- chairman of the BPI, uh, which goes with all sorts of other jobs as well, which is Brit Awards chairman and um, trustee of the Brits and all, governor of the Brit School and various other sort of bits and pieces like that. The BPI, for people that don't know, that's the, uh, the body that... Um, promotes and protects the recording music industry. The British Phonographic Institute, is that it's, it It's yeah. not institute, industry. Industry, sorry. Yes. So let, let's go back, Tony, because for years you worked at DMI. Yeah. Tell a, a good, way of, uh, good way of citing people on this podcast, we always think is, what records were in your house when you were growing up? Did your parents have loads of records? Um, and the answer to that is, there were none. <laughs> there none were no records in our house when I was growing up, because we didn't have a record player. But um, I spent a lot of time at my granddad, the granddad's place, because he had a pub. Then oh. he had a jukebox. And so that's where all the records were. They were on the pub jukebox. So from about six or seven, spent a load of time there. And I just remember his jukebox. I remember 
What's the Specific songs? Records, paperback writer by the Beatles, Spanish <sighs> Eyes, Al Martino, Al loads of Tom Jones. That sort of mid-60s, because I was born in 56, so it's a, a early 60s, mid-60s. There's something about the throb of music from a jukebox that is not yeah. like oh, any yeah. other kind of music. No, it was Very great. Silly. And I think, you know, once I actually got a bit of money, that's one of the first things that I actually bought in terms of extravagance was a, a jukebox. A word is a jukebox. So from, from uh, being born in the house that had no records at all, how did yeah. you end up in the record Business. Well, I I, um, I was bought a guitar by my non-musical parents, which was uh, which was really great, and um, I that was my just big passion at school. Oh, you were in guitar. a band, weren't you? And I was in a band. I was in a band at school. Um, I was at school. I'd come from Bolton, so, so there was. There was a couple of bands uh, in our school. Um, the one I was in and the one that Mark Radcliffe was in. Because <laughs> oh, he was yes. the year below. Oh, I right. see. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you and uh, ask him which was better. Anyway. Um, <laughs> what was your group called? We have to know. Oh, you have to know. Our, our group was called Black Cat Bone. Uh, <laughs> your names. Not you... Bones, Bone. Just Bone. So you weren't a blues band? Not very much, no. Oh, we were right. very much influenced by Johnny Winter. Yeah. Free, uh, right? All yeah, that yeah, I can imagine. And his was called Berlin Airlift. Uh, oh. you, was there ever a kind of I'm going to have to use the word expression sound clash when the two of you met <laughs> on some epic stage? I believe um, one blew the other off. I believe the barn at Rivington was the uh, <laughs> was the was the venue for uh, for us two playing together on the same bill. But anyway, so what, that was. A, that, were you the singer? I was. I, I, I sang and played guitar. Fantastic. Um, and uh, and it was great. And but everybody's in a band at school, aren't they? Everybody. Everybody. So everybody uh, in the music industry has been in a band. Been in a band. And then so it's not really that interesting. They went to university in Newcastle and was doing economics but really spent most of my time in another band and that was a bit more serious because when I after I graduated I just carried on that was my job in a band and in what, a band. And what was actually the attempted to make a living was, in yeah, a band absolutely and what was, was this called, called this was 1977 um, to 79 David and I are already worried that we might have reviewed you for that record <laughs> mirror instead of <laughs> and I remember no I didn't <laughs> And you would know that, though. <laughs> and we were called the Young Bucks. Oh, and we played... Then, it was very much of that sort of pub, you know, pub-stroke new wave period. So we played all the Hope and Anchor and the Music Machine and the Marquee and Eric's in Liverpool. Supporting who? What sort of people were you supporting? We played with... Um, well, i tell you who supported us oh, on their first the London point. gig. The Cure. No. <laughs> Whatever happened to them? I think it was their first London gig, so at that place up Harrow Road. Wasn't no, their first London there? gig was the Moonlight Club, I think, wasn't it? I was, was, I was at that, yeah. Well, see, I Pretty thought this sure. was their first London oh, maybe, gig. But yeah. anyway, it must have been early because they were supporting us, and I'm sure they got you know, they got beyond that pretty quickly. But um, So in 1979, yeah. you saw Sense. In 1979, <laughs> uh, the band broke up, and I thought, you know, really, I'm not good enough for this, because you, you do realise who's good. You see The Cure, and you think, actually, these lads are pretty good. They're going to do all right. This is good. Brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. And he was only 17, wasn't he? Absolutely. There's a really so interesting good. case of this that's, that's in the current issue where uh, they talk about Andy Murray's uh, group, Stiff All Stars and so forth, in the feature by Mark Hawkinson about people whose careers ended in the bargain bin. And Andy always talks about this, that they realised the moment had come to give up <laughs> when they played Dave Robinson's Wedding and Madness were the support act. Madness were like 16 or whatever. And Mandus made their way to the stage in a nutty train yeah. through the audience. Yeah. And, they, they, you know, and the Stiff All-Stars were kind of older blokes and looked at them and thought, no, we can't compete yeah. with that level of, of, of you ambition know, of brass and brass exactly. confidence yeah. to do that. Yeah. You, know, so that you realise so some much. people are real, don't you? And that is so much a part of what makes a successful artist, really. You know, that... 
and the, which I, you know, came to realise later on. But you know, after the band broke up, I, I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to have to get a job, but I'm not really interested in anything else apart from music. So let's try and get a job in the music industry. Look through Music Week, which is a trade magazine. First advert I saw would look vaguely sort of gettable, and. Um, went for it, which was in a, a company called Warwick Records, which is a bit sort of wrong Was it a Yes, yes. What, what no, no, no. Was it they was, did uh, compilations, didn't they? Yeah, they were all compilations. TV, TV advertised yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And um, it was getting stuff made. It was getting uh, stuff made at the factory and getting uh, sleeves printed. It Assembling was, the parts. It was production controller. I think, oh, right. The, uh, the, he has the, worked the, his the way up. The title was. Viewers. So that was, uh, that was the first, that was the entry point. And, um, and I'd got no idea. I'd never worked in an office before. Went in there with, you know, I don't know, probably false references, who knows. And um, they, you know, said, there's your desk. Will you need any stationery? I said, no, no, I don't need any of that stuff. (laughs) Because nobody teaches you about the context of an office, do they? You know, I'd been in a band and signing on the dole for two and a half years. So how long were you at Warwick? And I was there for about six months. And then I went to, I I did various uh, small labels. I went to Logo, which was also Transatlantic Records. Which was a great place to be, actually. But then... Working with what uh, sort of bands there? um, There were... The Tourists and so? The Tourists. The Tourists, of course. The 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 Tourists. Yeah. Yeah. But it was really, it it was end of the end of Empire sort of uh, days at at, uh, at Logo Transatlantic because they were... Was Transatlantic run by Nat Joseph? No. It it, it, it had been. It had been Founded by Nat Joseph, it was the big folk label. It was, and um, Bert Yanchin said he was. And the people that owned Logo Records had bought Transatlantic as a catalogue. They'd made a lot of money from the tourists. They were part owned by Marshall Cavendish, the part works oh, the publisher. publishers. Yeah. And um, during um, my time there, which is another six months or nine months or whatever, Marshall Cavendish decided we were bought by somebody else who didn't think they needed a record company. So redundancy. So within a week, because it was like that then, I got a job at RCA uh, doing a similar thing. It was all about, you know, getting stuff made. Because I did all of this within within about 18 months, went through all these various labels and ended up at EMI. In 1982. So who? What was happening in EMI in 1982? Who were the kind of big acts? Is that um, Duran Duran? It was. I suppose it was Duran Duran time. Um, Iron Maiden just uh, just started out. Pink Floyd. And uh, Pink Floyd. The Wall had come out not too uh, long before. But it was um, it was a funny old time because I mean I don't know about you but I I wasn't too impressed by the eighties as as a sort of decade music wise. And um, well, if you'd been the editor of Smash Hits, you would have had a lovely time. Oh, we had it right. (laughs) Sky was not haircut one hundred. I won't have a word said against Howard Jones. But carry on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was it. There's all this sort of new romantic stuff, which I'm sorry I I couldn't really get myself get into. Um, But I was. I, for, again, for about six or nine months, I was doing the production controller thing. I was getting stuff made. They gave me a small staff of three or four people, which was great because they were quite old guys who'd been around when Mr. Lennon and Mr. McCartney used to come in checking the proofs of, oh, I don't know, of the they first called Beatles Mister. out. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, so still EMI in those days still had the old kind of there was very civil service hierarchy. There was, a vest, there was definitely, it was a period of transition and there was a very much a vestige of that old EMI there. Right. Um, they, they weren't quite wearing white coats, but they were wearing suit and ties, these, these guys, because you're talking about people in the 50s. They were yeah, heading yeah. towards retirement and they'd been there ages. And... Uh, 
and they they were really quite traditional. But of course, they had you know they had great stories, and you know you just sit there. Tell me more about when you saw the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Mr. Gilmore was in only last week. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that young Master Gilmore. Yeah. 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 So now you ended up the boss of EMI mm. for how long? Mm. Well, um, I I mean the first the first real sort of big break or the first real mark was was relaunching Parlophone as a label because uh, Parlophone. Had never actually hadn't existed since George Martin yeah, left. Yeah. Yeah. You know, since he decided that, that maybe work, being on a salary wasn't the best way of uh, of, of earning a living. Which from he's the still bitter about, of course. In Which the documentary. he still mentions. <laughs> yes, and, uh, he does. And, you know, fair enough because his contribution. Got a chip on your shoulder. Yes, <laughs> this is an answer, wasn't it? His contribution was immense. Um, but uh, but since he left, the, the really Parlophone didn't exist as a fully fledged label. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it had been used as an imprint now and again by bands would come and say, "Oh, can you put me on that yeah, Parlophone yeah. label?" But then in the late eighties, uh, someone with with a, a good idea thought, well, let's you know, let's really try and make something of this. And and by the time it got to sort of ninety one, ninety two, I became managing director of this thing called Parlophone and, who and was started. On and who was on Parlophone at that time? We were. We had the good 80s artists, like the Pet Shop Boys. So you, <laughs> you sort of went through the, the roster and said, you oh, can like, come and play on Parlophone. I want to know who the bad did? ones Well, <laughs> I think that, no, because... Where are you because going because to Neil, render Neil and Chris... <laughs> <laughs> Neil and Chris had decided... Step <laughs> Everyone is going to Parlophone. <laughs> well, Neil and Chris had decided they wanted to be on Parlophone they quite were. early on. In fact, they were, they were probably as responsible for reviving it as a label as anybody. Right. But then it was making it a proper label because to the outside world, you think, oh, these are all these labels are full of people in, you know, one office called Parlophone with that, you know, Parlophone on the door. Not so. It's just being used as an imprint. But we made it into a fully rounded label. So we built it on things like... Pet Shop Boys and Morrissey, and we had Mark Armand there. We had um, then we had big superstar artists like Paul McCartney and Tina Turner and Queen. And, uh, Did you used to get them together for the Christmas party? It would have been an interesting party, wouldn't it? <laughs> They'll put their arm around each other for the company photo. <laughs> Actually, later later on in the nineties, we would we would have Christmas parties like that, and, right. and there were those sort of juxtapositions. Right, um, right. but. Uh, then the the then then we really when we really started getting into our strike with Parlophone, we signed um, Radiohead, um, Blur, which came via Food Records, but was you know a real Parlophone artist. Um, we had Foo Fighters coming in from America. There's a lot of great right, artists. Right. But you were in a very uh, well, I don't know about a unique position, but a position that doesn't appear to to exist anymore. I went to your leaving party, in fact, mm. which must have been about was it about three years ago? now? It was just over three. years And ago, yeah. uh, Tony had a fantastic leaving send off in, uh, in Abbey Road Studios, and the number of musicians from the label that were there was absolutely it was very impressive, and very touching. <clears> and uh, the various mates of Radiohead were there, and, and, and Damon Albarn made a wonderful speech. And, <laughs> and um, it, 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 Tony's position was uh, not just the managing director of the company, but obviously in a very powerful A&R capacity because you I remember hearing from people like Radiohead that you still turned up at their you know their gigs and were yep. there banging on the door and even after you in fact left uh, <laughs> the label, I think you still you still go and see yeah them. I mean I still keep in touch with a lot of them now and, and in fact sometimes you know you might actually proffer an opinion about what they're doing but how did that come to because he, I think most people listening would think that, that, that once you get to be the managing director it's going to be a business thing it's going to be somebody hunched over a load of spreadsheets and, and making that's executive the, decisions so how did you manage to, to, to incorporate with that? a lot of effort really Mark because the, the the default position the higher up you get in a company is to get completely embroiled in accountants and lawyers and business and let everybody else 
carry on with the fun stuff. And so I made, you know, a very active decision quite early on that I wasn't going to let that happen. Because if you're in, I, I got in the music business, not because I was into business, but because I was into music. So yeah. I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to allow that to happen. And so, but you do have to make an active effort to do that because you would otherwise just be, dragged into all-day meetings with people who were going to tell you about this spreadsheet and that spreadsheet and about these new laws and so on and so forth. And and that really is, is, is not why I got into it. I got into it because of music. So I made every effort to as often as possible, I don't know, just, just to renew the soul a little bit sometimes, go down to a studio where one of these artists were playing and just sit there and have a chat with them and you just come out feeling like you'd been, you know, reinvigorated. It was so fantastic. do you feel you made significant, um, to help make significant decisions, re, for example, uh, single releases, uh, you know, the track, the track list and on, on albums? Um, I think there were... Maybe on the, maybe there are specific ones. I can think of one specific one which I, I mentioned a minute. But I think the main contribution that I think I made was 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 gradually building an atmosphere that was conducive to creativity, because you know and give enabling people and empowering people these are all sort of management words but it but it's true you know you can't do it your bloody self you're not going to sit there and say okay lads you know this is the way it's going to be here's the the running order comes down from the managing director's office cheers no you've you've got you've got loads of people working in these labels and they're not and if if they're not working and making their own decisions then what's the point of them being there so so part of managing a creative company is actually letting people be creative within that company and then letting them enable artists and so on to have the freedom to create and make mistakes and so but on. And do so on. you do you have to apply the judicious nudge in terms of working with artists? Clearly you can't be you can't be ringing Tom York every day and going, Have you got any new tunes? You know, <laughs> they sound like hits or whatever. But you probably have to have one conversation with him a year or something like that. You have I mean you do have this conversation and not necessarily directly with Tom York, but probably with with the band and, and but it but it's a not it is a an ongoing thing and that's why I tried to actually spend as much time with with the musicians as possible because I thought, well an hour spent with a key one of these key artists is is more important of course. than and a week spent yeah. looking at a bloody contract yeah, yeah, yeah. because I can't contribute much to that latter process, but right. I can. Well, Damon uh, Albon very sweetly pulled out at the end of his speech, pulled out of his pocket a CD with is. some demos on it. So well, I brought these along, and I want Tony to listen to them. Which yeah. is really, really nice. But yeah, but I mean, you know, some of the some of the best times that I've ever had have been sitting in a studio with people like Damon and just talking about the stuff. And in fact, I mean, he's a special relationship, really, because he really. Opens, he welcomes you in, you know, and uh, and that is, that's great. He really felt good about being on a record. He label. wants your reaction. But presumably, really you does, yeah. saw you you were the person who went to see Blur in the very early no days. no no no. I worked with them from the very first single. Oh, right. They were signed, signed by them. David Balfe and Andy Ross, oh, David who had Balfe, Food Records. Yes, and Food Records was a joint venture with EMI. Yes, but um, relatively early on in the in the process, Food then. Uh, was bought by EMI and um, David Balf moved uh, round about the second album and Andy left um, a couple of albums after that. But I actively signed the Gorillaz project. I mean, that was that was yep. a project that I that I really got behind because that was a that was a pretty big commitment. I remember you saying to me a while ago we were talking about uh, singles on, on records mm. and you said that very often they come along later. 
that, that, that I thought it was a really interesting light it shone mm. onto the relationship between the record company and the artist. Well, well, and the, the pressure. Well, yeah, I mean, they do. I mean, there is there is a, um, a not. Well, I don't know whether it's a famous story, but I mean, a few people would know the story about the second Blur album, where um, David Balfe, who was the uh, Food Records guy, um, had got the whole album and gave. Uh, Damon a bit of an ear drubbing and said um, there's no singles on this, go back and write some singles and and sure enough he went away that Christmas a bit sort of uh, forlorn and yes. wounded and, and came back with what turned out to be the first two singles um, from the record which was uh, Fall Tomorrow and uh, Chemical World I think and um, on, the, on the Modern Life is Rubbish album but, but I think a lot of the, I'd like artists to actually, I, I, I think the whole thing starts quite early on is in the artist that you choose to work with because you actually want artists that can sometimes make that decision for themselves and i do they remember they can listen to their own stuff and go this needs a single you know what i think there's you know there's something missing here yeah, yeah. and um and i remember specifically the second Coldplay album now if you can imagine the the business pressure the corporate pressure the expectations the stock market and all of this rubbish which is not really conducive to creativity that's going on <laughs> all around <laughs> the waiting for the second Coldplay album <laughs> it was scheduled for a certain date and uh, we were down in the studio with the band in fact I think doing um, a bit of a pre-playback of a few tracks to some American media to get the whole ball rolling the American media left and uh, we sat there with the band and um, the conversation started about, you know, it's not all there, is it really? This came from them. Oh, this came from them. And this and Chris Martin, um, you know, sat down and, and played this song that his manager at the time, uh, Phil, Phil, said, you know, I remember this, you know, from a couple of years ago, really, maybe this is what should be on the album. And he played it on the piano? Yeah, on the piano. And... And it was um, a song called uh, The Scientist, if I remember rightly. And we held up the album for three or four months, which, you know, probably sent the share price into a spin because we were... uh, But it was... But that was just... You know you're dealing with a special artist when they can when they can make those sort of yeah. decisions for themselves. Do you think that was in any way based on the on their reaction by the American media? That the American media has sat there and gone... Uh, and gone, yeah, it's really good. <laughs> in in a way that is not exactly the tone of voice they're looking for. No, not at all. No, <laughs> right, no, they, okay. they all they were all absolutely knocked out. It, oh, was, that, uh, it was that moment, really, and uh, it was it was the beginning of Coldplay's moment. But they but they knew, and 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 it is great. There are, when you're working with very special artists like that, and I count Damon and Chris Martin and Neil and Chris and so on. They know more than most record um, label people, let's face it. And then when you're dealing with somebody like Paul McCartney, you know, his experience, or Mick Jagger, their experience of our business outstrips any record. Yeah, you've never been tempted... about two or three. You've never been but... tempted to say to either of them, now, now listen, Paul, <laughs> what I think you should do with this is this. But there are some people who are, are legendary. I don't think you've ever worked with Brian Ferry, so I can talk about mm. Brian Ferry. Oh, you have? Oh, right, OK. Mm. Well, just, uh, Brian Ferry, you don't have to respond to this, but... From, from, 
of the people I know who've worked with him, Dave Stewart particularly, worked on collaborated on various records and yeah. He said he, he finds it, Dave, Brian Ferry finds it impossible, A, to know when to stop. This was a, um, a, a charge often um, laid at the feet of Bruce Springsteen. You know, yeah. you can carry on like, like artists, you know, just, just another dab of paint. You know, just <laughs> leave it, it's there. And also can't filter out the good and bad, or the commercial and non-commercial. Because obviously if you're the person who wrote the songs, you just have particularly strong feelings about a certain song, mm. which in the old days you might have deemed a B-side, and the record company are trying to advise you that to get a hit single is the advertisement that will get people to listen to that B-side that you so badly want to listen yeah. to in the first place. If you don't have the hit single, they won't. But um, there are certain yeah. people, Brian Ferry obviously being one, who... <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got this... You developed this... You developed this... Yeah, theory he's not saying anything, by the way, listen. <laughs> well, we will. You, you developed this theory, though, in the office once, didn't you, that, that artists like making records, they just don't like finishing them. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's true. Because they're kind of terrified of the judgement that comes with, uh, with, the, with them know, being no, finished I, or put out. I, I suppose so, but I, I can then I imagine an artist like, like Robbie Williams, who had this in, incredible run of success and who was very actively involved in making his albums. He loved finishing albums because I don't think he particularly liked being in the studio. I think he's different, though. My my theory was that there's a sort of comfort zone Mm. that... uh, And the studio is the best example of that, and it's it's a very, very inviting place because you can shut the outside world out, you can shut out any responsibilities as regards talking to your, your public... You don't have to give interviews. And a lot of musicians don't like the promotional circuit, mm. you know. And we, journalists like us, expect them to be as eloquent and as uh, effervescent and sizzling uh, in interviews as they are when they write lyrics. They, they, why should they be? Yeah. You know, they might be great stage performers, but they don't necessarily have to be a, a you know, classic Bob Moe and one-liner merchant. No, it you're right. When and they are. In the so they quite like being in the studio. It's a sanctuary. Because, yeah, nobody can get them. <laughs> oh, don't, 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 don't disturb them. They're mm. writing a masterpiece. Yes, yes. Actually, they're not. They they're hope. smoking an Enormous thing <laughs> doing the crossword. In fact, two of the members of the band are asleep, but you know it doesn't matter. You know. So during your time at EMI, uh, Teddy, I, I know you're a huge music fan. Do you ever sign anybody just because you're a fan? Yes, Doctor John. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> because I had it because I could, so I did. And there was a, I, I met his managers. I think they were managing another artist. Um, I think they were managing Cassandra Wilson, who was on Blue Note, okay. and um, and the, and they were talking about uh, Mac and. Uh, and said, oh, you know, I don't know what's going on. And I said, well, would he be free for signing? And, uh, well, he, he might be. I, th- I, think they, I think they knew he was yes. going to be kicked off whatever label he was on at the time. And I just think he's just an incredible talent. And so I thought, well, I was, I was in the middle of a, quite a strong run at the time. Nobody was asking any questions. I was making a hell of a lot of money for EMI. <laughs> so so I thought, yeah. right, we're signing Dr. <laughs> And it was it was one of the best things because you can't measure the value of something like that with with you know direct sort well, of. You can when the sales come in, <laughs> which are which are obviously modest, but also you know then you know other artists he's on a the label. Artist. He's a profile yeah. artist, but it really does count for something because right. people will actually say, you know what, I thought they were you know, this label when you're trying to trying to get an act. That is really in demand to sign Sounds to a to label. label. They'll say, yeah, they've got Doctor John. Yes. They've got this, that. It and the does other. matter. Doesn't Isn't this that? great? Yeah. And and actually, it really does matter because he is a musician's musician. I mean, he's one of these guys yeah. that, in any room that he's in, however famous everybody else is in the room, 
he's the centre of attention. He's Dr. John. He always and is. And you're not. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. It indicates <laughs> that this label has a soul, doesn't it? And, uh, I think cares so. for... Uh, and cares and, and has a soul beyond music. commerce, you know, exactly beyond well Babylon. Yes. Um, so um, I, it was fine. And it, and it didn't, you know, nobody died. And it was... Uh, <laughs> and uh, the first... How long did you remain on the label? <laughs> he, he made about... It was, it was a long and fruitful relationship. <laughs> and uh, it was... I think he did about five albums, actually. Blue Note in America you picked him up. You first to buy 500 copies of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, he made some good albums. Right? No, but you also signed Richard Thompson, didn't you? Um, I, I did in the UK. And right. he, he had been signed to Capitol Records in America. And so we inherited him because we released right. Capitol Records material. And because myself and um, our head of promotion, my chum Malcolm Hill, were like right. massive Richard Thompson fans, then we sort of, you know, we, we took him over. He became, uh, he became ours. And uh, and that was fantastic because actually best of both worlds. Although is we weren't paying the bills, but we were working with Richard Thompson, so it was it was fantastic. You made a load of very good records for EMI, which mm-hmm. you 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 were marketed very well, and mm-hmm. you know got behind him. Didn't really make an awful lot of difference, did it? Really? I think it made a lot of difference to his uh, his ongoing value in the marketplace and selling tickets, etc. I see. And yeah, no, absolutely, because he's. He's 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 never really gone away in that respect, yeah, sure. and, I, and I think the you know the best thing we could do is you, you never expect him to be selling hundreds of thousands, but the best thing you can do is because you know all the albums are going to be really good, is just make everybody aware of it, treat it with a certain amount of respect, and and enjoy working with it. And that's it's 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 actually good for some of the people in the label, the younger people in the label. I sound like an old git, but the younger people in there, but really enjoyed working with people like Dr. John and Richard Thompson, because it gave them a different perspective and it gave them a bit more depth in the way they thought about new music. The Word Podcast. Walking the digital dog since 2007. Tell me, signing acts and uh, and watching them either flourish or go or mm. you know flourish and go, is it is it sort of like having like having affairs or whatever? Is it, <laughs> does it always end? You know, it always ends in tears. Um, well, <laughs> it's um, I think it, it ends in tears if you deal with it badly. I mean, there is obviously most of the artists that you sign are not going to become Coldplay. So, but I think that if it, I think you've got to always remember that they, you know, you're dealing with human beings, you're living, breathing organisms. This is not um, widgets or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so you try and treat people with as much respect as possible. And you might not be delivering them good news. I.e., you know what? We actually aren't going to continue with you. But if you if you if you deal with it like a grown up and you front it up, then hopefully. It's it's not a negative experience, you know. But could it be said, uh, from a journalistic point of view, Mm. you know, in my experience, Mm. 30 years of interviewing people, 33 actually, musicians are enormously good at placing the blame elsewhere. (laughs) It's always Uh, the marketing. uh, It's it's the marketing. (laughs) It's a brilliant record. It's the marketing. It was a strike. It was a strike. (laughs) It was a strike of the press. They ran out of of plastic. Yeah, Yeah, we we ran out of plastic. First, it got on Radio 1 and they simply couldn't supply the demand. New A&R man came in. Yeah. Yeah. The company was taken over. It's everybody's fault. It's an industry full of broken dreams, isn't it? Well, it is, and and and, you know, record labels are a great um, are a great uh, repository for blame, and and it's easy (laughs) to do that. And yeah, absolutely. And and it's 
It's a drag, I, but to be honest, and I'll be really straight, I, I didn't really get too much of that experience. You know, I can look a lot of artists in the face that I, that I used to work with, and they'll say, you know, really enjoyed that time that we were... Maybe as the chairman you were in a high-security panic room at the top of the building <laughs> and you didn't have to deal with, with it. With an emergency <laughs> exit, right, yeah. an ejector Yes, they've been thrown out. Yeah. But who, give us an example of some of the groups who you just hoped had done better. I mean, you must have signed a lot of people, worked with a lot of people, you just wish that they did. They deserve more success. I wish Supergrass. I wish Supergrass oh, they were brilliant. gone on to a different level. Supergrass, brilliant. Because Supergrass, and I actually bumped into them the other night. Um, they barely made a bad record. They were so brilliant. good musically and so creative. And in fact, on the first Dr. John album, they played on three or four tracks which is nice to bring oh, the really? you know the old artists yeah. with the new artists um I, I, I just wish that they'd uh, they'd been appreciated more but you know sometimes artists aren't necessarily going to enjoy that commercial success but what goes into be- making an artist successful isn't just about how good the records are as we know i mean you know nick drake records being a great example i think it's all about two or three thousand each didn't they yeah yeah, yeah yeah um and they're amazing but the, it's 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 there are so many different ingredients, and you know, one of them is the the steely ambition and determination of the people in the band. This is um, it, and it? I think it's such an important thing. And when you do, and it's not, it can sometimes be characterised as a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It doesn't necessarily come in a bad package. You've someone like uh, even Paul McCartney still cares passionately about whether he makes a successful record oh or he not. really does yeah and and that's really striking you just yeah. think to yourself my goodness the amount of success and kudos and so on that you've got but you still want this well this one is to a, a regular theme on, on podcasts pass him isn't it yeah, yeah. i mean it, our, our theory here is if you it, 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 we, we applaud this don't we <laughs> elton john Bobby, if you're gonna do it do it wholeheartedly yes don't the, just but they've got to be fiercely ambitious these people yeah. in a way that i think often mm. fans don't give them sufficient credit for being well sometimes it's not cool to be fiercely ambitious and but so they are but they are and uh, and you know if you take Coldplay for an example even on the first album Chris Martin even uh, within all the self-deprecating nature of, yeah, yeah. of him was saying you know we're going to be the biggest band in the fucking world yeah yeah and um, take some nerves exactly what the A&R wants to hear I mean, and you do want it you do want yeah. to hear that and, and you want and you think to yourself when people sit down in, in your office and you're thinking about standing band and they say that, you think, I want to, you know, hitch myself to your wagon. You. You know, absolutely. absolutely. There's a minor case of this I was thinking about this weekend with the sad death of Clarence Clemens, mm. which is the key, the key... When you look back, the, actually, the key day in the career of Bruce Springsteen was when he went to the photographer studio to have some pictures taken for the cover of Born to Run. And he turned up, not on his own, not with the band but with Clarence Clemens. <laughs> now, uh, you, you, knowing what you know about the politics of bands, that's a really high-risk manoeuvre, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, to say, no, you guys are not going to be in this picture, this guy's going to be in this picture, because two of us together make the picture, make the brand of Bruce Springsteen. Absolutely. And no, and no marketing consultant mm. told him to do that. Completely. The manager didn't no. tell him to do that. He knew and that. it's the dynamic yeah. between the two of them. And that's, again, that's it's... The, it's potentially a very upsetting thing to do yeah. for the rest of the band. But it's got to come from the artist. and if, yeah. Because if you, as a record label, or as an artist manager or whatever, are constantly in the position of having to suggest to an artist what they look like and what their album should be packaged like, then you've got the wrong artist, frankly. You know, if you think back to... So we've mentioned Blur, really. The second Blur album... 
they made, or, you know, the band made, and Damon specifically made, a very active decision that the time was right to reinforce Britishness. Now, we think about this now, and it's like, well, yes, yeah, so what? <laughs> but actually, at the time, it was a really potentially no. um, incendiary thing to do, quite yes. not a particularly fashionable thing to do, um, and, but, but he really felt that this was being underplayed in society. And he was, he was absolutely right. And it was saying, OK, there's all this American music that, we're all, that we all love, all the, you know, Nirvana and so on and so forth. But, hey, we've got our own culture yeah. and let's be proud of it. And we don't have to necessarily be you know, right-wing skinheads in order to be proud of British culture. And so let's, re- let's reinforce that. And, and that came from them. And it was an, an intuitive um, thing, which they, were, they pushed. And I think it's artists like that who really have a sense of themselves, of, of, of their potential and where they're going, that you want to work with. And a big picture. And a really big picture, absolutely. You know, it goes yeah. beyond the, the, the quality of the songs. That's it. Tony, I want to move on to your... Um, you're currently chairman of the BPI, and you've, you've also written a... You now are at the stage of life where you you write reports for think tanks, <laughs> uh, and you've uh, you, you've uh, done a report with Eamon Ford of occasionally of this parish uh, about the potential future of the music business. Tell us about this. Done for the University of Westminster. Yeah. So what, what's this all about? What's it all about? So, OK, so the University of Westminster have got this thing called Music Tank, which organises you know talking shops, conferences, seminars, and so on. Um, and they asked me, would I do um, a report on the role of the record label, specifically? And, uh, and, and a big, you know, report. And so, at the moment, what I, since, since, since leaving my big job three years ago, I resolved to sort of make as many decisions um, to take me out of my comfort zone as possible. And so I said yes, and then I spent several weeks regretting having said yes, because I thought, how am I ever going to do this? Because it's 25,000 words, and I'd re- never written more than about 500 before, I don't think. <laughs> so you got Eamon. I'm in your <laughs> So I thought, OK, I'll call the good Dr. Eamon Ford. He can <laughs> be my, my collaborator. <laughs> yeah, buy him loads of biscuits. Uh, he can be my collaborator. <laughs> and, um, I, I, well, this is it. And, 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 I, and I actually thought it would be a better experience with Eamon because, frankly, I thought he would just write it for me, but he wasn't having any of it. He was great, actually, because he was, no, 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 you've got, you've got to write it. You know, once you've done a chapter, I'll have a look at it. And we'll, no, but he wouldn't, because I, I, I was just hoping he would say, tell you what, you do chapter three, I'll do chapter two, and it'll all be fine. No way. He just wasn't falling for it at all. So it was quite tough, but I'm glad that he did that because by the end of it, I felt a sense of achievement. But anyway, that's a personal. So, thing. do you feel that what, the music, the record business, has a future? So, yeah. some people don't. So I and, and we're talking about specifically the record label that was right. the, the uh, which which is probably the most um, legendarily in jeopardy part of the music industry. And so I w- and and in conclusion, no. I don't think... It, I, sorry, in conclusion, is it in jeopardy? No, it is in jeopardy. Does it have a future? Absolutely. And I tried to actually give a very, very balanced picture. I wasn't writing it as the chairman of the BPI, which represents record labels. I was writing it as Tony Wadsworth. And, um, and so I did... Uh, with Eamon, who had to transcribe them all, we did about 20 first-hand interviews with people all over the business talking about their experience with music and what became very very clear is that with the whole shift from physical to digital with the whole shift to um of of the economy from about the year 2000 where the the music market stopped growing after that huge boom in cds 
um, there have been a lot of question marks about, OK, well, now we can all get our music to market directly. We, you know, we don't need mm. these middle people. These, these gatekeepers have all disappeared or they're not needed anymore. We'd, the record label is an outmoded concept. And I, I'd heard that so much, particularly there was a lot of clamour about it three or four years ago. And so I just really wanted to test that and just test it with, all, with not just people within labels, but with managers, um, publishers, agents and so on. And what became pretty clear to me was that the role of the record label is probably more needed than ever because it provides, um, provides a filter I mean, there is so much noise out there. Yeah. Um, it provides a way of cutting through that noise with, with music that has been actually selected by people who probably know what they're talking about. Um, it isn't enough just to make some music and just put it up there and think, well, if it's good enough, it'll sell. And, um, because it and doesn't. Because it? I'm afraid <laughs> that doesn't happen. And, and, and then you look, if you look at it by example and just look at, well, OK, where are the examples of people doing it without a record label and being very successful? I'm sorry, there actually aren't any. There are people built by record companies. You, you could even argue that your old pals Radiohead, yeah. in their last release, which I know you weren't involved with, mm. which was put out by themselves, yes. uh, suffered from precisely what we were discussing earlier in this podcast, <laughs> which is that they didn't have an outside agent going, for God's sake, change the sequence of this and um, change the uh, the rhythm of it. Um, well, put, put, um, put a single in there. Well, I think that with Radiohead, um, I, I actually thought that both the albums they released uh, it, themselves um, are really good albums and uh, it's... They're great you know, records, their but they're, pre- not, they're not as considered, they're not as focused no, as they were no, when they but, were working but with to, the record company. But to, 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 you know, to put myself up as, as, as saying that I would have actually done them differently or told them anything different, to be honest, one wouldn't. I mean, Radiohead aren't that sort of artist. Um, you, they're the ones that you've actually got to give them a context and some freedom and, some, and let them express themselves, and they do, and and that's great. But what Radiohead did do was, yeah, they they, they were the nearest thing to actually doing it without a record label um, that we've had. But let's, you know, first of all, it's an artist that spent 15 years um, with a record. a record label. Secondly, um, actually, they didn't totally do it without a record label, as they would be, the, you know, first to, um, you know, state because they. After doing the initial digital release, they then were released in the UK by XL, which is one of our leading independent yeah. labels. They were released in America by another label. They had other label partners in different parts of the world for the physical release of getting the music into stores. So, you know, that they probably were the, are the most extreme do-it-yourself artists and worked with four or five labels. Yeah. in getting their music out. Yeah. So, so yeah. what do you think? If we could, I mean, This is impossible to answer, and if people knew the answer, they'd be making a lot of money out of it. But in five years' time, mm. what do you think? Because you're in a very yeah. central position here, and, mm. in, in a good position to be able to say, what do you think the main changes would be? I mean, will there be no CD market? Mm. I mean, what, are, are there going to be some fundamental changes? On I, think there'll still, I think there will still be a, a physical CD market. Um, I do, however, think there'll be a subs- you know, it'll be a substantial uh, digital market, massive majority. I mean, it's 50, 50% in America already uh, digital. It's, it's, you know, there's a huge penetration of digital in the States. And, but in, the, uh, in this country, it's something like 30%, something like that. And it's, and it's going up. But before you go any further mm. with this, yeah. I, think, I think it's a very key point because we get a lot of discussion about this on, on, the, on the World Web website and elsewhere in the media that that can't there be an orderly migration from a physical product <laughs> to a digi- digital equivalent and the people always say cd market's gone down by 30 percent mm. digital market's gone up by 30 percent as, as if one made up for the other <laughs> well it doesn't does it i'm afraid it doesn't because but... the cd used to you know when the cotton was high cost you 13 pounds <laughs> and yeah. you got the whole cd yeah 
It's um, <clears throat> and also it's uh, no, it, it doesn't work like that. And, and you, but you do have to have some sort of order in that migration because, you know, one thing's for sure: if we didn't, if we hadn't uh, had a music market before the year two thousand, if it hadn't existed, if CDs hadn't existed or vinyl hadn't existed, and this thing you know, the file sharing or digital or downloading appeared, we would actually be, we'd be building this market faster than we are now. But because it's because we have nothing to lose, nothing yeah. to protect. Yeah. And it's that, um, but, but the, the migration has got to take into account the old marketplace as well as the new marketplace, because the old marketplace is still providing the vast majority of the income. Um, and to have some sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, d-day scenario where you say okay today we're stopping making cds it's all going to be digital well the income of the whole industry would 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 just collapse and the investment in new artists this is the this is where it gets really important would just dry up and uh that's it's the investment in artists that sets certainly the uk marketplace apart from most other countries in the world because we invest in artists at a level where we know they've got a chance of selling around the world because we're a worldwide player like and the only other country really is america that does that what do you mean by investment do you mean buying them the time to develop as a, as yeah. a uh, artistically or do you yeah mean giving them the money to be able to giving them the money to be able to do this as a full-time job giving them the money to make records um promoting them at an early stage basically losing money for however long it takes before they might make some money and that's a substantial amount of money but that can only exist that level of investment if but that income. level of investment can't be as great as it was because you could argue that there will never be another supergrass there just won't be one because uh, supergrass supergrass was uh, something that required mm. gestation wasn't it um yes but well i'd, I'd say that that there would should have the patience for that anymore? well there should be more um uh, more of that and i think that if the, if the business got started to as the business develops, I think it will, it will take advantage of the fact that no longer do you, do you need to invest the levels per act that you needed to do. Because marketing and distributing digitally is a much more efficient way of doing things. And therefore, there is probably more likely that there will be a lot more supergrasses around and possibly less um, Lady Gaga's. Because the... The, the investment that you, you that may, in something like a supergrass is, is, is actually more economically viable in the digital world than it is in the physical world. Right. It, it is, it is, it, it's, it's better targeted, it's, it's, it's um, more efficient. And so I think that there is, a, there is a, a probability that there'll be a lot more artists at that level, but, but they'll be making money. They won't. It won't actually be regarded as a failure if you sell X amount of records. What's the state of? We hear a lot about the three hundred and sixty deal, mm. where a record company ostensibly signs an artist, and they don't just own their rights or have a part of their rights to their music. Mm. They also have a bit of the T-shirt sales and the live revenue or whatever. Mm. Is that a model that's growing? I mean, because you did one of the first ones of these with Robbie Williams, didn't you? Didn't yeah, you know? um, and that was... I mean, the Robbie Williams deal, you know, came about because uh, everybody wanted to sign Robbie Williams at that time. We'd, we were, he was, he'd done a four-album deal with EMI. He was, he was the biggest artist 
basically in the world solo artist at that time, even though he, he hadn't was. even broken in America. He was he was the biggest selling artist in the world, and solo artist anyway. And uh, and everybody wanted to sign him. He was out of contract. We needed to get him. There was going to always be a lot of money on the table. Um, whether it was eighty million pounds, as he speculated, is open to speculation, and it wasn't. But <laughs> it was always going to be a big deal. And everybody, everybody wanted to sign him. And so the deal had to be quite a special one. So in order to be able to make it. Um, more financially sort of rich, if you like, for the Robbie Williams camp, we devised with the Robbie Williams camp a type of deal which meant that we were investing not just in his his records but also in everything else that he did from his um, live album, from his from his live work to his his publishing to just every what we call ancillary income, right. uh, which when you're an artist at that level is not ancillary; it's most of your income. Yep. You know, record starts to become. A minority picture, and and that was we that was that was justifiable because it involved a lot of money, um, and we became minority partners in the Robbie Williams brand, right. and that was an exciting experience. the The three hundred and sixty degree deal, which is becoming pretty prevalent now, really comes from a different place, which is look, record labels. I think it's the recognition which comes through in the report, the recognition that what record labels provide is marketing, is expertise, is contacts, um, it's bringing people together and it's helping you actually, you know, get your thing going. And they, they spend more on the marketing of those artists than anybody else in the music industry. So if record labels revenue is declining, which since the year 2000 it has been, where's, where's the money going to come from? And so the recognition from artists that actually being on a record label, apart from selling records, is actually quite a good thing. Because, you know, when we were on a record label, we sold all of these tickets. And then when we weren't on a record label, it all dried up. Yeah. Go figure. So I think that the, the, the rec there is a recognition that the record label provides this fuel um, outside of just, you know, the sales of CDs um, or whatever to your books. whole career. And and the record industry, frankly, needs that um, additional sort of income in order to justify the the expenditure that they make. What Johnny Mitchell called the star maker machine. That's right. Yes, behind absolutely. the popular song. And and so and so now, if you ask if it's growing, um, certainly the two biggest, Universal and so and uh, Universal and no, not the two biggest. Sorry, the, big, the biggest company, Universal and also Warner. I know both of those uh, companies. Uh, 100% of their new artist deals in the last 12 months had an element of 360 degrees in there. Right. I.e. it had, you know, bits and pieces of different different income. 100% of them. Um, so from three years ago, it was... A, it, was, it wasn't very common at all, and I think a lot of um, artists, managers, and so on felt, actually, no, this this isn't your money. But I, I do think there's a recognition now that actually this isn't such a bad thing because this helps your overall career. Do you think the music business gets a sort of a bad rep for um, for its its response to the challenges of digital? Because everybody nowadays looks at the book industry or mm. whatever the film industry and does and says, don't make the mistakes that <laughs> those clowns in the music business That's did. That's right. And, um, you know, what's your response to that? Well, my response is that um, we were the first. Yeah. We, 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 um, we encountered this 
massive opportunity stroke threat I before anybody else. <laughs> and there was, you know, there was no guidebook, there was no instruction manual, there was nobody, nobody, there was no example, no template, nobody had ever done it before. And so we were making it up as we went along as to how to deal with this in both a positive and a negative way. Uh, negative being, you know, Suing people, positive being try and get this digital business moving Mm. as fast as possible. You're inevitably going to make mistakes in an industry, and to say the industry hasn't made mistakes would would be lying. But I defy any of those other industries that that have been um, critical, and particularly you know the good gentlemen of the press uh, were particular. (laughs) Now now that they're encountering it themselves, (laughs) they're sort of thinking, "Hmm, it's not quite so easy, is it?" And but but also, I'd like to think that whatever mistakes were made by the music industry. They're there to be learned from as well. And we were there first. And was, we... was 1997 the year it all changed? That's the general agreement. The general consensus is that 1997 was when peer-to-peer came in. And at that point, uh, record sales began to plummet. Well, they didn't. Right? No, they, they actually... No, rec- peer-to-peer came in about that time. Record sales didn't start to peak until after the year 2000. So that it, was, was the last hurrah. Oh, really? 2000? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, so it was because... 99 that Napster really took off. That's right. That's a little later. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when the, that really took off. And, and you know, the, there's the apocryphal tale that the record industry just didn't want to do a deal with Napster. Rubbish. Of course, the record industry would have liked to have done a deal with Napster, they, but they didn't want to do the deal that Napster wanted to do because yeah, yeah. Napster wasn't one young kid in his bedroom, which he would like to be portrayed. There were investors behind that, and they had a different yes, it's idea. Been, it's always been set up as a kind of Facebook-style yes. evangelism, wasn't it? And they had a different idea as to how um, the, this this investment in, in Napster was going to was going to pan out. And so, you know, it, it, there was no deal done. And uh, and so history says the record industry uh, refused to do a deal with Napster. It, it's, it's just not true. Um, it, uh, but it wasn't until what two thousand and three that, that that iTunes um, came along, and that was it made sense. Um, iTunes because it, it was part of this constant, this consistent suite of different products which all hung together. Um, and it made buying music and playing music digitally very, very easy. And, uh, and so that was, you know, that still is... So you look is, upon is it as a good one. thing. I, it's a good thing and a bad thing, because what you don't want is, 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 a, is a player in the market like iTunes as, as big and as dominant as they are. Because Steve Jobs, you could say, runs the international music business, and he um, only thinks about it for 2% of his time. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't put it that way, but obviously... It's, they're a very powerful force, and what we would like as the music industry is, is to have more and more people as successful as Steve Jobs. <laughs> that <laughs> would be nice. That, but what are you? <laughs> but what are you going to do when Steve Jobs comes around with his iTunes? Say, well, actually, no, you're getting a bit too big, so we'll stop licensing our music. To you. <laughs> yeah, That's gonna, not going to happen, is it? Tell <laughs> me one thing, one final thing. Still, although you have this massive, you know, downloading legal and illegal, and you have this, you know, huge competition with all the other forms of entertainment. You know, so you don't have the classic old days of record selling thriller quantities and whatever. And yet you still have Adele, mm. Coldplay. I don't know. There's probably other examples yeah. that still seem to sell in quite old fashioned ways mm. and in quite old fashioned quantities. How do you account for that? 
Well, I, I think that um, there, there are always going to be extraordinary artists. And, and that when, whenever everybody's making graphs about the way that industries go, they tend to actually neglect the extraordinary. And we're an industry that actually depends on the extraordinary. That's a really good point. <laughs> and, um, and Adele's an extraordinary talent. Coldplay are an extraordinary talent. I mean, Coldplay's first four albums, each one sold more than the previous one. During that time that the record business was falling off. That is so rare. Yeah. It's almost unique. And, you know, we're in an industry that is all about bucking the trend. That's why whenever you get so-called outsiders coming into our industry telling us how to run it, they get very, very confused because it works in an unpredictable way. And I suppose that's what makes it exciting. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent.